Well, good morning, everyone. A few months ago, I asked the electrician to come out to my house and give me a free electrical inspection. I thought, well, this is a good way to check everything out and make sure my electrical system is up to snuff. And so when the young man came to the door, I turned him loose in my house. And about an hour later, he came back and he said, Mr. Lay, I've completed your inspection and I want to go over my findings with you. Now, I didn't expect any findings. So I was thinking, I wonder what he found. We sat down at my dining room table and he said, Mr. Lay, your system looks good overall. There's nothing that needs to be fixed today, but I have some suggestions for upgrading your system. I was relieved, of course, that I didn't have anything to fix, but I wasn't there for upgrades, but he was. Your main panel is showing some wear and tear, he said, and in the next five years, you're going to have to replace your main panel. He said, and oh, by the way, there's a fried snake in there as well. But he's not doing any harm, and so I didn't remove him. But I thought I'd let you know. And so I looked at him, and I said, well, how much? And he said, $3,500. And I almost fainted. You didn't need it right away, he said, so you can start saving for it now. The other two suggestions I have are upgrades based on new building codes. One is a whole house surge protector, and so when we put the new panel in, we'll put the new surge protector in as well. And of course, you can imagine what I said. How much? He said, oh, about $350. And at this point, I was wondering if ignorance would have been bliss and if I should have never asked him out in the first place. Mr. Lay, he said, you need another grounding rod. And I said, grounding rod? He said, yeah, in case your house gets struck by lightning or there's a major surge, he said, you want your uh, house to effectively ground itself. And he said, these days, we put in two. And once again, I said, how much? He said, oh, about $200. And I was thinking, well, a few years back, my neighbor's house got struck by lightning and it did major damage and almost burned it down. And so I was thinking to myself, maybe I need that surge protector. I was thinking maybe I should start throwing some money aside for that panel and that surge protector and that grounding rod and that snake removal. And then I won't damage my house if a major surge happens or if it gets struck by lightning. Well, at that time, I did not order the work. But I tell you, I'm still thinking about that grounding rod. What about you? Are you grounded? And I don't mean, is your house grounded? I mean, are you personally grounded? Do you know whose you are? Do you know who you are? And what is it, by the way, that grounds you? These days, we're experiencing major crises in America. Uh, We are battling over our national identity. We are grappling with our cultural identity and we are struggling in our personal identity. The question we are battling with in our national identity is, should America be defined by the Anglo-Protestants that founded her? The struggle, the question that we are grappling with in our cultural identity is, how should people be perceived? Uh, Should people be perceived as part of a group or as an individual? The question we are struggling with in our personal identity is, is personal identity 
changeable? Is it flexible? Are we humans fixed or are we flexible? And by the way, who decides what that looks like? Wherever one of these crises affects us, and many of us are tempted to get right in the middle of them. Have you gotten caught up in these identity crises? Have you derived your identity from your politics, your view of people groups, or maybe your individual choices? Have you created a false identity around your career, around your money, or around your pleasure? And what false identities have you fallen for? Well, today it might surprise you. It might surprise you to hear that the idea of identity change is not foreign to Christianity. It's foundational. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away, the new has come. And at a time when we are struggling with identity... God has given us everything we need to solve these crises. And so today we're going to look at a passage of scripture in Colossians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14 that gives us insight into four truths about our identity. And these four truths are very important when it comes to living in a world that is battling, a world that is grappling, and a world that has individuals that are struggling with these kinds of crises. And what we're going to see today, the main point, is that every one of us can please the Lord. Every one of us can live a life worthy of the gospel. We can please the Lord by surrendering our identity to Christ alone. And so let's dig in our text today at Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says this, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ. Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth the gospel which has come to you just as in all the world it is also bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. The first truth we see today is that we can please the Lord by surrendering earthly hope for heavenly hope. Now, the Colossians had come to know Christ as Lord through the preaching and teaching of a man named Epaphras. And as a result, their faith, of their faith, they were demonstrating love for one another. Because of their faith in Christ, they now had hope. But it wasn't hope in this life. Paul says that their faith was because of the hope reserved for them in heaven. Uh, The hope was uh, not in this life, but in the next. And so Paul makes a point to remind them of some important things about this newfound hope in the gospel. And the first thing he reminds us of is that their hope is reserved in heaven. Hope is the motivator of faith. It's the impetus of our faith, we might say. Uh, But if we place our hope in life circumstances, we've misplaced it. When we place our hope in heaven, our identity changes. 
And Paul says in Philippians that we are no longer citizens of this earth, but we are citizens of heaven, focused on heavenly things. And so let me ask you this morning, are you focused on heavenly things? And Paul also says that this hope comes through hearing. Now, Paul connects their hope in heaven with the word of truth, the gospel, which they previously had heard. You see, the gospel must be heard for faith to become active. The book of Romans says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so this gospel had come to them. And this gospel has come to us. Paul also says that this hope reaches the world. Uh, God doesn't have different gospels for different peoples. Uh, there's one gospel and one Christ that reaches everywhere because of the witness of truth. Uh, we don't have the good news without a witness. In this case, it was Epaphras. Romans 10.15 says, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And Paul also says that this hope that they have produces fruit. And one of the fruits that they had was love one another. Uh, this gospel is a living, growing, spreading organism. This gospel has divine energy in the human heart like a mustard seed, a small seed that grows into a big tree. The fruit is transformed lives and a growing, maturing church. This hope is also, Paul says, is rooted in grace. Because the very heart of the gospel is grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. And there's absolutely nothing that we can do to earn it. Paul also says that this hope, this hope that these Colossians have, this newfound hope in heaven comes through people. Uh, notice that Paul didn't plant this church. Uh, in fact, he said it came from a faithful witness by the name of Epaphras. Epaphras sowed the gospel and planted the church in Colossae and Laodicea, and he reported the good news about the faith of these believers back to Paul. And so God has chosen human agency to spread the gospel. Paul recounts how this gospel had come to them and how the faith, hope, and love they had is grounded in the witness that was brought by a faithful man. Every one of us have heard the gospel because of somebody else. How did the gospel come to you? I always like to say that I grew up with a privileged past. I didn't grow up privileged because I grew up rich or wealthy or had it easy or anything like that. Uh, I grew up privileged because I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, the gospel came to me through my parents and through my grandparents and through my church. And so I trusted Christ one night at a saxophone concert. One night, it was, I was nine years old in the late 70s, and a man by the name of Bernard Johnson came to play a concert at our church. And I always loved the special services on Sunday night. And there was no preaching that night. Uh, there was no teaching that night. Just music and a testimony. And as all bad, good Baptists do, an altar call. I'd heard the gospel over and over again from my parents. 
I heard the gospel over and over again from my church. I'd heard the gospel over and over again from my grandparents. And I was at the point where I was ready to trust Christ. I didn't understand all that was involved, but I did understand three things that were very important. Number one, I understood that I was a sinner that needed a Savior. Number two, I understood that I didn't want to spend eternity in hell. And number three, I understood that whoever this Jesus was, I wanted to live with him forever. And so when that invitation came, there was absolutely nothing that would have stopped me from going up front to trust Christ. That's how the gospel came to me. And I remember that night after I had trusted Christ, I stood down front and all these men and women came down to shake my hand. All these ladies came down and they said, this is the best decision that you'll ever make. I was nine. I'm 51 today. And I'll tell you that this is the best decision that I have ever made. How did the gospel come to you? Because it's not by chance that the gospel came to us. It's not by chance that we are privileged to hear the gospel. We've heard because somebody brought it to us. And we understood the grace of God is truth because of God's doing, not our own doing. Not because we were good, not because we were intelligent, not because we were deserving, but because God wanted to give us a new identity in Christ. So if you're hearing the gospel, that is the good news about Jesus Christ today for, for, for the first time, it's not by chance. We've all heard because somebody else has brought it to us. The second truth we see today is that we can please the Lord by surrendering our will to his will. Notice what Paul says in verse 9 about the Colossians' faith in Christ. He says, For this reason also, since the day we heard about it, we have not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Ever since Paul heard about the Colossians' faith, and their trust in Christ, he has not stopped praying for them. He has prayed without ceasing. And he says that it is for this reason that, uh, and since the day that they heard it, that is the gospel, it goes all the way back up to verse 4. He says, for this reason, that is their faith, that I've been praying for you. Paul's main request in the prayer, uh, the thing that he's not ceased praying for, is that he's asking God, to fill them up, to fill them up with the knowledge of his will. Like an empty glass that gets filled all the way up to the rim, Paul prayed that these believers would get filled all the way up with the knowledge of God's will. Paul wants these believers to know God's will so they can act on it with spiritual wisdom and understanding. But notice how God's will is known here. God's will is not a mystery. God's will is not a secret. But it takes prayer. We don't have spiritual wisdom and understanding naturally. We don't have it just because we're humans. It comes because of what God does. James says this, If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God. We ask God for spiritual wisdom through prayer. 
So let me ask you today, are you praying for God's will? Are you praying for his wisdom and understanding? Do you have some other people in your life who are praying specifically for you in the circumstance of your life that you might be filled up with God's will? Now, the Greek word here for fill is plero. Uh, it's a simple word. It's been used 88 times in the New Testament. It means to make full or complete. Uh, it means to fill with overflowing even. It's often used to Jesus' reference to fulfilling prophecy. And the use of the word here is quite interesting because it's in the subjunctive mood. Now, the subjunctive mood in Greek is the mood of possibility. And so, men, if your wife asks you to repair the dishwasher today, if you use the subjunctive mood, what you're going to say is, I might do that today. Now, by the way, I don't recommend you using the subjunctive mood when you're going to do a honeydew list for your wife. She doesn't want to know if you might do it. She wants to know if you're going to do it. But when the subjunctive mood is used here in Greek with some specific other words, it takes on other kinds of meanings. And here we have what's called a henna clause. When the subjunctive is used with a very specific word in the Greek called henna. And when this happens, when this happens, the Greek no longer indicates probability or possibility, but instead it indicates purpose. So this kind of clause removes the contingency and it views the purpose as definite outcome. And so is Paul praying here that these Colossians might be fulfilled? That they might be filled with the knowledge of God? No. He's praying that they would be filled with the knowledge of God. His expectation is that the filling will in fact happen, that his prayer will be answered. But notice who does the filling. Now, this word is an aorist subjunctive passive. It's a passive word, which means that the filling, the action of the word, is done to the recipients from the outside. Uh, somebody else fills these believers. They don't fill themselves. In this case, Paul's praying because God is the one that does the filling. Paul's not calling these believers to somehow gain their own understanding of God's will. He's not calling them to uh, seek it out on their own effort. Instead, he's asking God to give it to them. The knowledge of God's will comes on the heels of asking. It comes on the heels of prayer. God has designed our spiritual lives in such a way that we need to ask him to fill us with the knowledge of of his will, so that we might apply the will of God in a wise way. Do you have others praying for you? Do you have others praying for you? Are you praying that you might be filled with the knowledge of God's will? The other day I was here rocking along, answering emails, working in my office, and out of the blue I see a text come across my computer screen from my wife, and it says, uh, what does Greg want from Chick-fil-A? And for a second I thought, I have no idea. Uh, but then I thought about it for just a minute. And I paused for a moment and I said to myself, 
why is Melody asking me what Greg wants? I was kind of confused, and then suddenly, suddenly it all made sense. I'm the one who always goes to Chick-fil-A and picks up our food. And so because I'm the one who goes, I know exactly what everyone wants right down to the packet of sauce. Uh, JP likes a spicy chicken deluxe meal with hot pepper cheese, three Chick-fil-A sauces, and a Sprite. Uh, Matthew likes a number one, no pickle, two packs of Chick-fil-A sauce at least, and a root beer, no ice. And so that's why Melody asked me what Greg wanted. And so I typed back. He wants either an eight-count nugget with a Coke and Polynesian sauce or a number one with a Coke. Polynesian sauce. She said thanks and she went to lunch with Greg. Got him exactly what he wanted. But since I'm the one that spends time eating with our boys, picking up the Chick-fil-A sauce, I know exactly what they want. It's easy for me to know what they want. I even have it memorized. And so when we say in our house we're going to Chick-fil-A tonight, I don't even have to ask them what they want. I just go. I know their desire because I've spent time with them. Do you spend time with God? Do you know his desires? Do you ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will? Do you know what he wants? He wants to give it to you. And he's the one that gives it. Now, why the world is Paul asking or giving thanks and praying for these believers anyway? Well, there was a heresy that had crept into the Colossian church, and instead of teaching that rebellion and sin come from the human heart, the heresy said that matter was the origin of all evil, and so evil then resides in the body. And people were deceived by this teaching, and they began to follow strict rules. Uh, They began to believe that the spirit is good and the body is bad, and so they began to treat their bodies severely. Uh, They became ascetics. And Paul says this looked like humility at first, but it was just self-made religion done in their own strength. Which leads us to the third truth we see today, and that is that we can please the Lord by surrendering our strength for his strength. And notice what Paul says about the whole purpose of knowing God's will. He says, the purpose of knowing God's will is so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, uh, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all perseverance and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Uh, Paul says that the whole reason I'm praying that you might know God's will is so that you may please God, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of him and recognize that it's his strength that gives you the power to walk in a way that pleases him, not your own. And Paul wants these believers to bear fruit. He wants them to know God. But he also wants them to recognize that it's Christ the one that supplies the power. To live the Christian life. Uh, Paul wants them to be strengthened 
he says, with the glorious power of Christ. That is, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that lives within them by the Holy Spirit that they need to walk daily in the Christian life. We cannot live the Christian life on our own strength. We have to depend on his strength and his power to overcome and to persevere. And so as a result, Paul says, when we depend on Christ's power to overcome, when we depend on Christ's power to persevere, we find joy. And we then give thanks to God in worship. We come to learn that what God wants, as we learn his will and begin to act on it, we recognize and we are reminded that we need his strength to accomplish his desires. Which leads us to the last truth for today. And that is that we can surrender, uh, that we can please the Lord by surrendering our qualifications for his qualifications. Notice what Paul says God has done in verse 12. He says, he has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. Uh, When we stand before the Lord one day, God is not going to ask us what we've done to merit heaven. He's not going to ask us what qualifies us. He knows what qualifies us. It is Christ and Christ alone. Back in the day, I used to love watching The Price is Right with Bob Barker. Remember The Price is Right with Bob Barker? It came on at 11 a.m. I was in school at 11 a.m. So that means I needed to be sick to watch The Price is Right. Well, I promise you I didn't get sick just to watch The Price is Right. But when I was sick, I looked forward to watching The Price is Right. And so I hung out on the couch with my Campbell's chicken noodle soup and a TV tray, and I watched Bob Barker. The Price is Right was kind of unique because there were two steps to the game. Uh, First, you had to randomly be called out of the audience. And so you remember how that worked. Uh, The next contestant is John Gordon. Come on down. Do you remember that? Everybody just waited on pins and needles for their name to be called. Mayhem would erupt and the person would run down the aisle, take their place among the contestants, who then had to qualify for the big prize. If you guess closer to the real prize without going over, then you had your place on stage. But if not, you had to stay in your place and you got to guess again. The game was a plethora of emotions. One minute, a person would be running down the aisle with excitement, and the next minute, they'd be walking off stage with their head hung low. But the most exciting moments, the most exciting moments were not when people were randomly called from the audience. The most exciting moments were even not when they won the prize. The most exciting moments were the instant they qualified to play the big game on stage because they knew right then and there they were going to have a chance to win it all and to meet Bob Barker, their hero. Now qualified, they could say, I was on, the price is right. Well, God has qualified us. It's not something that we've done for ourselves. It's something that only he can do, and it's no less than a miracle. Miracle. We don't qualify ourselves. Notice 
how he's qualified us. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. It says, For he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. God has qualified us how? By rescuing us out of one sphere, the domain of darkness, and transferring us to another sphere, the kingdom of Jesus Christ the Son. Now, at first glance, these verses, just in a casual look, give us the impression that whatever has happened, it's not a good thing to be in the kingdom of darkness, and it's a good thing to be in the kingdom of His Son. But I think we all need to grasp what this means a little bit deeper than that. Before salvation, most people think they control their own destiny. At least they see themselves as their own masters with their own set of qualifications. But in fact, they are slaves to sin. They belong to the realm of darkness. They are chained as slaves to a destiny of damnation with no ability and no hope of ever rescuing themselves. Romans 5.10 puts it this way. We were once enemies of God. And so there is no neutral ground between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. We are either under the jurisdiction of darkness or we're under the jurisdiction of the kingdom of light. It's one or the other. There's no in-between. John says this in John chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. But God has enacted some kind of rescue operation on our behalf. Uh, The word rescue here literally means to snatch out for oneself. It means to grab and snatch out. And so if you have trusted Christ today, God has grabbed you and snatched you out of the kingdom of darkness and he has placed you in the kingdom of light. He has brought you home. What word picture comes to your mind? When you think of God snatching you out of darkness and bringing you in to the light. Sometimes our dogs accidentally escape out of our backyard and they wander around the neighborhood. And as soon as we realize that they are gone, which is usually pretty quick, we go on our immediate hunt, scouring the neighborhood and hoping that they haven't gotten hit by a car. I begin to call for them, watch for them and drive around in a panic looking for them because they have no idea how to navigate life outside the fence. As soon as I see them, I drive over, grab them by the scruff of the neck, put them in the car, and drive them home to safety. I snatch them back, and I bring them to safety. safety. And this is what God has done. That we all are lost Not like a dog that has a home, though. Uh, We're lost like a stray dog, wandering around, scouring in the trash of life. But one day, one day when we least deserved it, God grabs us by the scruff of the neck and he takes us home to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's a picture of what God has done for you and me. He's transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of of his beloved son and he's brought us home to safety and so when God brings us to safety our identity the way we understand our personhood is changed forever 
We were once enemies, but now we are friends. We were once slaves, but now we are sons and daughters. We were once sinners, but now we are saints. We are in him, Paul says. We are identified with our connection to Christ and our connection to Christ alone. And so new life is not only found because of him, because of what he did on the cross by dying for our sins and rising again on the third day, but new life is found in him. Did you catch that? New life in Christ is not only found because of him, it is found in him. And when we trust him, he comes to live and dwell by the Holy Spirit within us. He saves us. He fills us with the knowledge of his will. He empowers us because he has rescued and redeemed us. And so the question this morning is, have you surrendered your identity to Christ alone? Has the grounding rod of Christ made you secure? Are you in him or have you embraced a false identity? It's not easy to lay down our false identities. After all, We have fought for them. We have sacrificed for them. And we are known by everyone else in society by them. Uh, To change a false identity that we've been living feels like that we have to start our life all over. But let me remind you that while we fight for our false identities, Christ has fought for your true identity. He gave the ultimate sacrifice so that every one of us, every one of us would be known, not by our own name, but by his name. Let us pray. Lord God, we live in a world that is struggling with identity, Uh, not just national identity, but Lord cultural and more specifically lord we're struggling with personal identity and yet lord you have the answer and the answer is found right here in the scriptures that lord you have in fact given us everything we need if we would just surrender our identity to christ and christ alone that we might be found in him Lord I pray today that you would help us discard the false identities that we so easily get entrapped by the false identities that we sacrifice for and that we're known by I pray Lord you would help us to give those up so that we might be known for the identity that you died to give us salvation in you and you alone. Amen.